Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, the monthly interview series we do here where we sit down with the best, brightest, most interesting, most notable names and minds in the video game industry. I am joined today by Jack Trenton. It is a pleasure, sir. You are the president and CEO of SCEA from uh, basically the, the PS3 era entirely up into the launch of PS4, but you've been with Sony since 1995. You've been around in the games business a long time. Thanks for coming, Jack. Yeah, six months before the launch of PlayStation 1, all through 2, 3, 4, PSP, PSP Go, basically every console and portable that Sony's ever shipped. That's a hell of a resume, and that's what we're here to talk about, because i, I got to figure you're full of good stories from uh, the, the ups and downs of, of life at Sony. But I want to start with you know, how do you how do you end up in the video game business? I mean, it's uh, you know you, you end up this public face. You're on stage at E3. You're you're making presentations, but but you actually go back to Activision in the 1980s. Is that correct? That's right. I mean, I think at the end of the day, to be successful in your career, you got to enjoy what you do. I got a marketing degree from college. Went to Providence College. Graduated in 1983 and ended up in sales with Duracell Battery Company. Uh, work in Maine and New Hampshire as a as a territory rep and great. Co- company, learned a lot, but it was like being in the military. I mean, you know, you could see a 30-year roadmap to getting to the top. And when I used to come home from college, I'd play Atari 2600 with my younger brother. That was kind of our bonding experience. And I get a call from a headhunter about Activision kind of rising from the ashes of the Atari 2600 crash looking for people. And I said, boy, the video game business seems like an opportunity uh, to get in on the ground floor of a fledgling industry. And I didn't know I'd still be in it 30 years later, but it's worked out real well. So let's uh, let's fast forward up to joining Sony in '95. They were Sony was kind of an outsider in the games business at that point. You know, there, there was Nintendo, there was Sega. Uh, did you guys have the mentality back then that you were going to be? a titan, a power player, or, or was it more of an underdog mentality back then? Well, I think it's, you know, for me, relevant to go back even a little farther than that. Sure. At, at Activision, um, there were a lot of people uh, that, that really made their mark in the Atari generation, and when I was there, people were moving on and starting a claim, and I had the opportunity to join them, but I thought I was learning a lot at Activision, and somebody told me, make your mark, then make your move, so I really <laughs> felt like I learned the industry through Activision, and then I joined JVC and started a division for them, and it was a mirror image of what Sony was trying to do. It was a large consumer yeah. electronics company, a Japanese consumer electronics company that was entering the games industry, and I felt like I learned a lot about Japanese culture and the way a large consumer electronics company company would approach a division in the gaming industry. So I was competing with Sony ImageSoft at that time, and Sony ImageSoft was the software arm uh, of Sony and very similar uh, business to what we were doing at JVC. And then, of course, Sony Computer Entertainment was formed and uh, was approached by some people I knew through the industry. So um, the thing kind of came together relatively quickly in terms of what the perception of Sony was prior to the PlayStation and what it was when, when PlayStation was coming to play. But really, everybody said... Sony's a large consumer electronics company, haven't necessarily lit the world on fire at Sony ImageSoft. 
what makes you think you can compete with Nintendo yeah. and Sega? Well, not unlike the very same things Microsoft would hear a few years later. Uh, we'll get to that Absolutely. with Xbox. But I'm hoping, by the way, did, I don't suppose you had any uh, Activision stock from back in the day that you've held on to, because you, you would be uh, in pretty good shape. Oh, I, I, was, I was really <laughs> smart. I, I bought it at $5, and I sold it at $0.50 cents before it became <laughs> worthless. So I think if I'd held on to that stock, it got diluted a little bit. But uh, I know anybody that, uh, that held on to it made real good money. And if I'd stayed at Activision, and Bobby's a good friend of mine to this day, um, you know, the people that were there in the post-Bobby Kotick era made a lot of money. Yeah, uh, you're like, the, like William Shatner with the Priceline stock. I mean, you ever hear that story? He ended up, you know, that stock's worth like $1,000, but he, yeah, he sold yeah. it when it was worth nothing. Well, ironically, I've never been motivated by money in this industry, which is probably why I worked for some of the companies I did. But it's, it was always about experience absolutely. and it was about having fun. Absolutely. So, uh, you mentioned sort of the consumer electronics, and we, we're sort of touching on Sony trying to break in. Uh, I just wanted to ask you real quick. I'm not sure if you'll have anything on this, but uh, recently there was a prototype unearthed for the never-released CD-ROM drive mm-hmm. that Sony was uh, going to partner with Nintendo on. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see it? Did you ever? Were you ever sort of familiar with this? I think I think it was before your time a little bit. Well, ironically, Sony, I think I have one of the more informed perspectives on that because please. I was the general manager of JVC Musical Industries, and we were making CD drives for the Sega Genesis, the Sega CD. Yeah. So JVC actually sold uh, the Wonder Mega, which was basically <laughs> a JVC-branded Sega CD. So very familiar with the transition to CD-based technology. And I know the story well that at the time, uh, Sony was going to support uh, the CD drive for Nintendo much like like JVC was supporting uh, the drive for Sega. So I was looking at it from a competitor standpoint. Uh, But the decision to move on and create the PlayStation was absolutely before my time. Like I said, I joined um, six months before the original PlayStation launch, but that was, you know, two years plus in the making. One of the ultimate butterfly effect moments in in the history of the video game industry, no doubt. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm curious, what what was the reaction kind of, uh, you know, I asked you about, Sony, the reaction to Sony getting into things. What was the reaction at Sony in 2000? You, know, you guys were geared up to launch PS2, but when, when Microsoft came out and announced, hey, we're going we're gonna to get into the console business. Um, I think, you know, if, unless you're massively ignorant, you have to respect Microsoft's power. I mean, more money than God, uh, very much like Sony, a heritage of success uh, in other industries, but uh, if Microsoft puts their mind to anything and they put enough money behind it, um, they're going to learn. I think the thing that was ironic about uh, Microsoft, Sony went out and really uh, tried to find people from the gaming industry um, that could help guide them along the way, especially market-specific for Europe or the United States. I think they are more internal in Japan. But Microsoft really stuck to the fact that we're going to learn this, we're going to learn it grassroots, we may make some mistakes, yeah. but we're ultimately going to do it or Organically, and they did that, and they lost a boatload of money. And I think in the early days, Xbox, you're saying, what are those guys doing? By the time they got to Xbox 360, they'd learned some you know, very good lessons and were very proficient at what they were doing and really built it internally. So in that time, you, you did launch the PlayStation 2 in mm-hmm. 2000. It, was that literally the best case scenario? The, 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 everything about that console. I mean, it was historically successful. 
Did it blow away even the wildest internal hopes and projections? Well, the great thing about the generations, I, I joined Sony thinking I was going to be there for three years, and I ended up staying for 19. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I stayed for 19 is there were a lot of you know, rewarding moments. And with PlayStation, it was an unknown comes into the console industry on shelves that are dominated 50% by Sega and 50% by Nintendo, and you kind of squeeze your way in there yeah. and build a successful platform. With PlayStation 2, it was, you know, historians in the industry said, you realize no platform or no company has ever been the leader two generations in a row. So to follow up the success of PlayStation and do it with PlayStation 2 was something that was extremely rewarding. And I think the other great thing about uh, PlayStation 2, it was really ushering in the multimedia era where, you know, PlayStation 2s did as much for the transition to VHS and DVD as they did for gaming. And, you know, a lot of people had their first and only DVD player uh, through a PlayStation 2. Oh, yeah, killer app. I mean, it was uh, the Trojan horse. Uh, Did you hear from other executives within Sony, like the TV division, this division, that division, when when the PS2 was just on this rocket trajectory? Well, the interesting question, I I mean, uh, I remember being at a trade show from a company called Transworld Entertainment in New York, very big in the music industry. And uh, I went into the restroom, and the guy looked over at my name badge. He's like, huh, Sony Computer Entertainment. Like, never heard of it. He's like, I'm with Sony Music. And I'm like, woo. But at the time, you know, Sony Computer Entertainment was like this pirate ship off the coast of, uh, you know, Sony corporate. And um, it wasn't widely known by the other divisions. It wasn't widely respected by the other divisions. But when it became half the bottom line of the corporation, a lot of people thought it might be a good thing to get to know those guys. Did you like it that way when you were kind of the... the, the almost the outcasts of the company? Well, or, I liked it because I wasn't a Sony internal guy, you know, so I came from the video game industry, yeah. so my chops and my pride was relative to the gaming industry. You know, Sony was a great company and they were funding everything, but um, I had no experience or really interest in the consumer electronics side or other businesses, so I, I respected the fact that they were part of the corporation, but it wasn't why I joined Sony. I joined Sony for gaming. Do you get when when PS2 is is just meteoric are you hearing from uh what actually well what are you hearing from the Japan side of the company is it just good job or is it what do you want to do next jack we'll get, we'll let you do anything what is, what is sort of the reaction when to that kind of success from the mothership over in Japan. Well, I mean, I think that the joke in business in general, and, and Sony's no exception, is what have you done for me lately? <laughs> so regardless of the success, the numbers just keep growing, the expectations keep growing. But at the time, clearly through PlayStation 1 through PlayStation 3, there was Ken Kutaragi there, and he was a, um, a very vocal um, yeah. Uh, manager, and it, you know, it was said. The joke was, if he didn't get fired by Ken, then he didn't respect you. You know, so <laughs> if he disagreed, it sometimes he'd just scream out, "You're fired!" You know, and I think he predated uh, Donald Trump with that. Um, but uh, you know, he he was a real visionary, and um, he I, I think at the time, really PlayStation One through PlayStation Three, the direction in hardware was really dictated. Um, 
by Japan. It, it used to be, you know, here's a box, see what you can do with right. this. Now go out and rally the software community, go out and build a brand around it, go out and position the hardware. PlayStation 4 was really the first generation where you go from the drawing board to say, what do consumers want? What does the development community want? Let's build a box based on this feedback. Um, you know, I think PlayStation 1 through PlayStation 3 is we're going to build a machine we want to build. And, you know, I, I think uh, Steve Jobs said it before, you know, the consumer doesn't know what they want. We, <laughs> we tell them what they want. And I think visionaries have a way of saying that. Do you have any good Kudaragi stories? Oh, I have a million good Kudaragi stories. I mean, he was really uh, an amazing man. And he was just, you know, he was unlike anybody else in that you can just take all corporate decorum and throw it out the window. <laughs> I mean, he was a real visionary. And I never worked for Steve Jobs. I certainly saw him speak. I never met him. Um, but I think he was kind of a Japanese Steve Jobs in that he had a vision that was very contrary to the corporate vision. Um, and I think there was a time when, you know, he was potentially... CEO of the corporation, I think he would have really shaken things up there, but yeah. unfortunately <clears throat> that personality is not typically the type of personality that gets to run a large corporation like Sony in Japan. So uh, the obvious, you mentioned the DVD functionality was uh, huge for, for the PlayStation 2 in the, at the time, but was there any one game that you look back on at, at, at being critical to the PlayStation 2? Um, PlayStation 2, not so much, because quite frankly, it launched with a pretty thin first-party library, so it was really dependent on um, the the third-party community, and the third-party community did a great job of having great games available for it. I think PlayStation 1, it was distribution deals, but we really had games that first-party distributed, like Ridge Racer or Toshinden, that I think really showed off the technology well. But PlayStation 2, it was completely the third-party community and the leap that let's say a Madden could make from PlayStation 1 to PlayStation 2 and franchises that you grew to know and love on PlayStation 1 and to see um, what they could do on PlayStation 2 is what really drove initial sales. Because for me, the, the, the killer app, you know, such things barely exist anymore. There really aren't those single games that you have mm-hmm. to buy the platform for. But for me, I bought a PlayStation 2 because a friend of mine brought his PS2 over with Grand Theft Auto 3. Yeah. And that yeah. completely no question changed about my it. life. And no you know, question that, that about was, it. That was at the point where you know, the, the PS2, uh, that game, uh, it's fair to say that game really helped contribute mm-hmm. to, because it was a... PS2 was the only place you could play that game. Well, you know, fortunate in those days, some of the greatest franchises that were born on that platform weren't born out of, you know, big checks written or hard negotiations, uh, just good fortune and a lot of hard work internally that Guitar Hero, you know, debuted on that platform and, you know, clearly Grand Theft Auto. Um, But, um, you know, just uh, I think it was a combination of being a great platform, having a great install base, and having good relationships with the publishers. Uh, how do you feel? Uh, so we're recording this. These are hopefully sort of time, more or less timeless interviews, but we're recording this in September of 2016. Uh, so I want to just ask you, how do you feel about The Last Guardian now that it's, it's finally about to come out? Do you sort of have any attachment to that or, or stories from that over the years? I, I think if you're in the press, you know, you prepare an announcement based on what, you know, the company tells you and you go out and you swear by it. Yeah. And, you know, The Last Guardian was kind of um, 
a title that people asked about all the time and um, you know the story changed uh, consistently with where it was going to come out but uh, I had to uh, launch a lot of titles and talk about a lot of games that were coming in the near future and uh, you know that's just the nature of the industry the fact that it actually did come to light I think is really exciting because uh, I got involved in a lot of announcements on titles that never saw the light of day. And those were third-party titles in some instances. Right. And talk about not having control of what ultimately happens. But even on the first-party side, things change with development sure. teams. And, yeah, I, I think it's it's great that it, that it finally came out. Um, you know, I think if you live long enough, everything ships. <laughs> Are you going to play it when it comes out? Just for, uh, Maybe. For you know, to be honest with you, I, I don't spend much time on the console anymore. It's yeah. like if you worked in an ice cream shop that only served vanilla, <laughs> ice cream. The last thing you would ever want is to go into an ice cream shop and eat vanilla ice cream. Fair so. point. Fair point. Uh, so I want to move ahead a little bit to uh, the day, like w- when you're named the president and CEO of SCEA, you're, you are in charge of the brand in America. You're mm-hmm. the face of it. Uh, what, was, was, what was that day like for you? Was it, was it an expected thing? Had you been kind of moving towards that? Was it unexpected? Just what or maybe I'm just romanticizing it and it's just sort of the day-to-day life but what is what is that like for you when that day comes No I think that was the ultimate job for me when I joined the company back in 95 I don't think that I ever expected that I would be there long enough uh, or that I would have the opportunity to have that job but you know if you're an American and you're uh, involved in the gaming business, uh, at least at Sony, that's the ultimate job in, in my opinion. So it was a very, very proud moment for me. And the thing that was great about it is, I mean, I was very mindful of the fact that I worked for a, for a large corporation, very mindful of the fact that we reported into Tokyo. But at least as far as SCEA was concerned, it was the senior job. And I was the CEO prior to that. And there's a big difference between CEO and COO in that ultimately mm-hmm. the buck stops with you. And you get a lot of the credit when things go good, <laughs> but you get all of the blame when things go bad. <laughs> um, were there any uh, reservations internally about the launch price of the PS3? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the interesting thing, that that period of PlayStation 2 to PlayStation 3 um, was the most intense period of my career, at least at Sony. Um, Tremendous success with PlayStation 2. I think at one point, you know, like, 60 plus 70 plus percent market share on a worldwide basis yeah. just the most successful platform uh in history and how do you follow that up and i think the easy thing to do would have been to have done a playstation 2.5 and something that's enhanced but kind of staying the course i mean playstation 3 was really stepping out of the box and i think ultimately it delivered a lot of great technology Absolutely. that's ultimately appreciated today but at the time because of the cell processor and all the proprietary technology it was was difficult to develop for it was difficult to manufacture it was extremely expensive to manufacture so at the price it came out at everybody knew that wasn't a consumer friendly price and amazingly that was losing a lot of money for sony even at that price so um, it was quite possibly the most difficult uh, launch scenario you could ever imagine uh, knowing that uh, 360 was already out that you were much more expensive than you wanted to be that you had much less inventory than you wanted to have at launch uh, and that it was going to be a learning curve in terms of um, software development in terms of manufacturing efficiencies so you know a lot of real challenges there at that launch and that was about 
uh, within 30 to 60 days of me being appointed CEO. So I used to say it's like it's being made the captain of the Titanic just before it hit the iceberg. I mean, it was not the ideal time well, cause you, to take so you, over. Yeah, you mentioned, because uh, with, with PS4, of, of the, the way it was developed and, and created differently, drawn up differently. Uh, so was it a case where Japan sort of handed you this the cell processor box, you know, the sort of foreign architecture, and, well, it's going to cost this much, and then you just kind of have to sell it and, and, you know, make the best you can with a, with a bit of a challenging yeah, circumstance? We, we always had global strategy meetings on a regular <laughs> basis, and we'd get together as the worldwide management team. We certainly had opportunities for input and certainly had opportunities to tailor the way um, we, we brought it to the market uh, in each of the regions. But um, it was much more of an engineering driven this is what the machine is going to be, right. and you need to figure out how to work with this so um, playstation three there was you know there was certainly input on strategy, but on design, um, really no major input outside of tokyo it's, I have a bunch more p s three questions for you, but i, I got to ask in this moment is it would it be fair to say that the p s four being made the way it was, the, with you know, you're referencing sort of just looking at it from a consumer, from a developer mm-hmm. perspective, from the ground up. Would that have happened without those experiences from the PlayStation Three? Do you think? Um, probably not. You know, lessons learned from that whole thing, and and I think every successful company learns from their challenges and their mistakes. So, um, you know, you would think, why didn't you do that from the beginning? But um, you know, given the success of PlayStation One and Two. And given the ultimate success of PlayStation 3, um, you could see, and, and I think the entire marketplace was, was changing in terms of yeah. consumer feedback and consumer sure, input being so much more online, important. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see here. Oh, I know what I... <laughs> what do you think when you look back on that boomerang prototype controller for the PS3? Well, those, those are all real. I mean, the thing that's amazing is just, you know, the hundreds of patents get filed yeah. on technology that may or may not happen. They may be filed during one generation, but it could be a generation or two down the road before they ultimately get applied, or technology shifts and they, they get abandoned. There are so many prototypes uh, that get done. Um, and even designing prototypes, you realize consumers, gamers, are very different uh, all around the world. So how big is the space that they're playing in, how big are their hands, and if you design a controller in one market, it may be less attractive to another market. I think you know the Xbox controller had a real Western uh, feel to it, um, and especially uh, the first one. Yeah, the PlayStation controller had a real Japanese feel to it, um, and even the length of cords and all that stuff. So you do a lot of prototyping, um, and you ultimately modify over the course of the generation and from generation to generation. So I think it's always cool to see some of the prototypes that never saw the light of day. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, because it, well, it was shown publicly. That's why. That's yeah. why I wanted to ask you about yeah. it. Like, I'm, I'm curious if it didn't focus test well or sort of what the, yeah, the reason was. It didn't show publicly in my market at a place like E3. You know, I, I don't know what event it showed at, yeah. but we didn't turn to you know everybody in North America and say, "Here it is. Here's the machine. What do you think?" And they right. Went, you know, we don't like it, and they went back and changed it. So it had already been redesigned before it had any degree of public unveiling, as far as I. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I was concerned. So uh, on, staying on the controller topic, the six-axis controller for mm-hmm. PS3, a lot of people probably have already forgotten that it didn't have the rumble, the force right, feedback right. initially. Uh, that was... Was that all just out of uh, the the not a lawsuit, but sort of a it was a patent agreement situation, wasn't it? Oh, I think anybody that was involved in vibration technology, they ultimately found that there were some patent challenges there. But I think you know any type of advancement in peripherals or hardware is to improve the gaming experience, and then yeah. ultimately you get to that line that says, "Does this enhance it?" Does it detract from it? And ultimately, if it doesn't enhance it, it goes by the wayside and the gamer rejects it. The cool thing about vibration is it did add uh, to the intensity and it didn't take your focus away from what was going on in the game. And even that had to be tweaked and learned because there were times when people added vibration and it didn't really help. But, you know, when there were some shocking moments, some impact, the vibration really, you know, helped with the the sensory reaction to it. So, um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of changes over the course of that vibration initially being introduced. And obviously, given the patent situation, people had used vibration before. Yeah, well, I mean, was it, uh, was it, do you kind of, are there any, I don't know if that went through you guys or through Japan, but was it sort of a, do you look back and go, man, we should have just, we should have just bit the bullet and come hell or high water gotten the, 
the rumble feedback in there from the get-go? Um, no, I don't, I don't think it was, you know, and again, I wasn't in the engineering department, right. but I don't think it was, you know, we could do this back in the original PlayStation. It, it evolved, whether it was the analog controls versus the digital controls, whether it was vibration. The controller evolved over time with, with technology and with reaction from gamers. It wasn't like, you know, this is the time when we're going to add vibration. It's, you know, the controllers kind of evolved over the years, but kept the similar form fashion so form fashion. the big PSN hack and outage was that the most challenging period of your of your tenure there yeah you know I was literally thinking about that on the way over and anticipating you know what you'd want to talk about and I think the hack and the launch of PlayStation 3 were probably the two toughest periods um, you know over my time there um, you know there was no winners in in that scenario it was really bad for the consumer it was really bad for the company um, so yeah that was a really tough time do you, I mean are you are you even in are you even in shock like does, does someone must come to you and say mr. Trenton we you know pulling you out of whatever meeting you're in to, to let you know what's going on I mean is it just a is it just a sort of Confusion, or, or what's what's that day like? Well, I mean, there are always problems that arise. Some of them become, you know, uh, a, a big story, and the public becomes painfully aware of it. Some stories get nipped in the bud before you know the the problem you know comes to fruition. And you know, over the course of a company's history, there's a lot of successes and a lot of failures. But that was you know kind of an oh my god uh, moment, and um, the degree uh, that it affected consumers was was really significant. And then, um, you know, when you work for a large company and there's a lot at stake, um, there's what you want to say and what you can say. So one of the frustrating things was the inability to really respond in any great degree um, to, the, to the gamers, which comes off as indifference. Right. And um, I really took it upon myself once everything was ultimately resolved uh, to apologize to the gamers prior to the E3 and or in my E3 presentation. Yeah. And that wasn't scripted. That wasn't approved. That was just something that I personally wanted to say because I thought they were owed an apology. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously wasn't intentional. Um, and it was is very damaging for everybody involved. But, uh, you know, thank God uh, the company got through it. And ultimately the the gamers uh, forgave them to a large degree. Yeah, I think you guys, all things considered, weathered it incredibly well. And unfortunately, you learned uh, over time that even if you were the FBI, nobody was uh, immune to to those type of hacks. So it became more prevalent, but uh, that was certainly a tough time. I'm curious if you can uh, talk about how the the relationship with Japan was overall in your time there, in the sense of, I mean, we've touched on this a little bit, but you know, kind of how much push and pull is there for you versus them, and how cooperative is it? I mean, it's because it's just a part of the game business that I think a lot of people don't understand. I don't understand it. I mean, it's a you, know, you mentioned it's it's a big company, and there's there's a lot of moving pieces, but uh, ultimately, with you know, you've got the hardware, but then the software mm-hmm. after you've launched. So. What is sort of the day-to-day like back and forth with Japan? Well, I think the fact that I lasted there for 19 years said that I was able to understand the culture and work with it. Uh, I don't know that I necessarily uh, ever felt like I could ever be part of it. And being an American, not being able to speak the language, I realized that I would you know, forever be an outsider. But I think to be successful... Uh, working uh, in a regional office with a global headquartered 
uh, company and Japanese culture being rather unique that if you don't understand it and you don't learn to work with it, you're not really going to accomplish anything. So um, it was a very predictable um, style of doing business. Um, and that was a good thing because you knew what to expect. Right. You knew how they would react. And you had to kind of strategize around that and work within that. Uh, but I think the frustration comes in if you feel a need to move quickly or deviate uh, or change direction uh, that culturally that tends to be a little bit slower, at least in my personal experience. So um, there was a lot of education on our side trying to um, explain what was going on in our marketplace and what we felt the challenges were and the opportunities were and how we'd ideally like to approach it. Uh, and then an appreciation for us to be able to understand what the corporate goals were, what the challenges were globally, and understand that while you were running um, one of the uh, biggest markets, um, you really had to tie things together on a global basis. And I, I think you know uh, companies that are successful globally tend to have a heritage in their home marketplace. Right. So, you know, Microsoft will forever feel uh, like a Western company to me. And I think, you know, companies like Sony and Nintendo will forever feel like an Eastern company. And if they're successful, they adapt to those other markets. But there's no question if you, you know, hang out in Microsoft's global headquarters and you're an American, it feels very comfortable. And if you're hanging out in Sony's corporate headquarters and you're Japanese, it feels very comfortable. If you're from another culture, you know, it's a, it's a different style of doing business. Uh, any idea how many miles, airline miles, you racked up between uh, here and Japan? Well, I know I, I used to have to turn my passport over because it would get stamped so many times that I needed to get pages <laughs> added to it. But, um, you know, I, I always thought that uh, they were productive trips, but I'd be lying to say I looked forward to them. I mean, it was, uh, a, long flight. It was a long flight getting over there, and you'd get over there, and they'd go, okay, let's go to dinner. Um, and, you know, you really wanted to go to bed. Right. And, and then ultimately... Um, you know, you'd fly home and you'd get home on the morning of the same day that you already worked. And uh, if it was a weekday, that didn't mean that, you know, people weren't weighing in with a lot of issues uh, after you just went, you know, 10 hours with no sleep. Uh Tell me about your first-party software strategy on the on the U.S. side. Because I look at games like The Last of Us, Heavy Rain, and I feel like the difference between, <clears throat> pardon me, Sony and Microsoft in the PS3 360 era was, I feel like you guys took more of a, uh, I don't want this to sound negative toward Microsoft, but kind of a quality over quantity approach in that not a, not a lot of franchises and annualized things, more sort of one-off, just like PlayStation exclusives. Uh, is that fair to say? And or, or can you can you maybe talk about your the, the yeah, strategy? Yeah, I mean, at all? and again, I think it goes back to the launch of the original <clears throat> PlayStation. People said, "I get the fact that." Sony is a formidable consumer electronics company and they could probably build a good box, but how are they going to compete against Nintendo and Sega that have such a software heritage? And I think there was an awareness um, that there needed to be good first-party software to differentiate the platform. And initially that was done by investing in distribution deals uh, with titles like Toshinden and, and Ridge Racer. And right. ultimately, you know, the investment was made in Worldwide Studios to the point where you know, Worldwide Studios dominated the employee base of the organization. Organization, um, you had more people in product development than you had in every other group combined. But the philosophy towards development there was we're going to let uh, creative people do creative projects. So um, my sense when, when Microsoft um, went to market, it was kind of more strategically saying, okay, these are the genres uh, that are popular and we need to have teams making the following games. Right. Where Sony kind of said, 
go out and create great games. And it was a little frustrating if you were on the you know, management and, and distribution side to say, great that we have two role-playing games, but you know, I would have really rather had, but you know, name genre. Yeah, and they sure, say, well, unfortunately, we don't have a studio that's passionate about making uh, you know, a platform game. And when we do, we'll, we'll make one. But it was really left to organically create games. So that's why there wasn't really a strategy. It was more games that people were passionate about making. And hopefully consumers and gamers were passionate about playing them. Oh, yeah. um, but I, I think business dictates at some point, you know, based on the expense of building games and the fact that first-party games had so much to do with um, differentiating the platform, they ultimately have to get a lot more formal uh, with the process. And I ran um, development for um, the North American market for four years, and that was that transition period where we started to pull all the regions together and start to get a little bit more strategic about the development process. Ideally, without um, missing the creative element, but you know, more to say, we have to strategically plan our projects and right. our budgets, um, you know, to, to meet with driving the hardware and the overall success of the platform. So I'm running out of time with you, unfortunately, but I <clears throat> I would be remiss. This question's for my boy Colin Moriarty. I have to ask you about the Vita. How do you feel about the Vita in hindsight? Um, well, now that I don't work there anymore, I mean, I think internally it was, this is a great machine, it's just too late. Um, you know, the world has shifted to yeah. portable devices that aren't dedicated gaming machines. And I think PSP was incredibly successful, and I loved what it did, and I thought it brought a console-like experience and brought Absolutely. genres um, to an older gamer that, you know, typically didn't have console-like games to play on a portable platform. But Vita uh, was a, a nice machine uh, at a time when very few people felt like they needed uh, a dedicated portable device. Did, uh, did, any, did you or anybody else at Sony see the Wii coming, Nintendo's Wii? I, I certainly didn't. Um, you know, I, I think you know, this industry wouldn't be where it is today if it wasn't for Nintendo. Um, so everybody respects the fact that they had such a hand in building this great industry that we've all been able to work in. Um, but... Uh, you know, from generation to generation, you never knew what you were going to get with Nintendo. You just knew that you couldn't count them out. And I think, you know, everybody discounted the Wii initially, um, and it really took the world by storm. And I'd, I'd say, you know, there are a lot more people in the surprise camp than there were in the <laughs> I told you so camp. You know, maybe a few people at Nintendo, but uh, the vast majority um, was skeptical when that came out. I gotta ask you for sure. Uh, you you did launch the PS4. It is also an historically successful console, like the PS2 has been. Can you take me back to to uh, you know? Because everything has gone right. Everything has been executed so well right since that February 2013 reveal. I mean, mm -hmm. that event just spoke to developers, spoke to gamers, got everything set on the right track. What was your goal with that reveal event? Because it did, as you mentioned, you know, it was kind of you guys. It was more. The U.S. side, the Western side, driving, driving the ship at that point. Yeah, I think that was the thing that was really great. That's the first time that a platform had launched, at least from Sony, uh, in North America, and that felt really good um, and really felt like we had everything right. And I think the great thing about that February announcement, it got a lot of the uh, blocking and tackling out of the place uh, so that you could really focus on strategy and how you're going to go to market for E3. And, you know, E3 went off swimmingly well and then um, you know I, I think Microsoft's challenges in the way they position the box were, were well documented but 
Um, you know, the thing that I've always believed is it's very difficult for one platform to carry a generation, and you need healthy business. You need you know, the rising tide lifting all boats. So, you know, ultimately, it's good for gamers. It's good for the industry. And quite frankly, it's probably even good for Sony that Microsoft has recovered well and that both platforms are innovating. And um, it'll be interesting to see what uh, Nintendo's new foray into the market does. But, you know, ultimately, um, if you don't deliver with a lot of choices and a lot of great innovation, gamers will find something else to do with their time. Uh, I want to ask you about what you're up to now, but before I do that, uh, can you give me, what are you most proud of in your 19 years at Sony? Is there sort of one thing that just right into your head right now that you, you really think is... Either, you know, defines your time there or is something that you're just exceptionally proud of and during Well, it, it comes down to people. I always felt like I had a great relationship with gamers and I really cared about the game or I thought about what it would be like to pull your wallet out of your pocket and have to put down money and it, it really killed me. If we came out with something that disappointed, it made me feel so good. If we came out with something that really entertained and, and caused people a lot of enjoyment. And then I'm really proud of the people I worked with. I felt like I had a real good hand in building a great culture there and hiring great people and helping them be successful in their career. So the people I work with and the people I served as far as uh, the gamers were probably my most rewarding experience. And, and the, having the PS4 as the, the last thing on your Sony resume is kind of a nice nice mic drop for Yeah, that's Sony kind of career, the drop right? the mic. You know, like I said, I originally thought I would be there for three years. I was there for 19. But, you know, talking about what I'm doing now, the opportunity to work on things that I want to work on, to work with people that I want to work with, and no longer to have to universally support um, you know what a large company dictates and there are great advantages to working in that environment and I did it for a long long time but you know, I really wanted to get to this point in my yeah, career. Yeah, tell me what tell me what you're up to. Yeah, because you've got you've got a bit more of a you're casting a wider view of things. These yeah, days. like I said, I'm probably spending less time. Well, I'm definitely spending less time with console than I ever did before. But you're mindful of the greater industry when you're working in the console business. But that really becomes the center of the universe. I've come to appreciate the mobile space much more. I've come to appreciate the PC space, and I love the indie development market. That is where you know these creative minds, these great Great business people that are creating games that never could have been done, you know, 10, 20 years ago are coming from. And because of digital publishing, you don't have to rely on a big house to ultimately give you the money and yeah. give you the opportunity to publish. Um, and I love working with those guys. And I think early access is probably the greatest thing that ever happened to gaming because gamers care about the technology. They want to have a voice in the game itself. And the beauty of early access is the developer gets free feedback. Right. They get revenue to help drive uh, the development of their game to the final product. And the gamer gets an opportunity to say, I like this, I don't like this, tweak it accordingly. And the indies in particular take such advantage uh, of the early access program. And now that Microsoft has started it, you have it on both PC and console. So that's really the sweet spot for me is working with the indie development community and whether these guys need help raising funds. I've, I've started a fund uh, and, and funded uh, a company called uh, Blue Isle Games that you're probably familiar with. They just shipped Valley, yeah, yeah. Uh, did Slender, the, uh, the Arrival, and they're working on another uh, game for next year. So raised a fund to help support them. So whether it's fundraising, whether it's general management, whether it's helping them find a publishing partner to either distribute uh, their game if they so choose to or ultimately sell their studio if they want to be part of a bigger thing. 
And uh, I've, I've had an opportunity to work with some great studios, worked with um, the guys doing uh, Ark Survival. Uh, that's that's yeah, huge. Yeah, Speaking yeah. of early access, that's yeah. one of the biggest early access success stories out there. And the amazing thing, you know, it's done hundreds of millions of dollars and millions of units. And it's not even shipping until yeah. next year on all formats. So, um, you know, the Studio Wildcard team has been great. And then I'm also working with High Voltage, who's got a well-established studio. has been around 23 years and done upwards of 100 games. Yeah, but they got some VR stuff cooking. Exactly, too. yeah, doing some great stuff on Oculus Rift. And uh, they've got the first and most successful first-person shooter game out there. So really being able to find those relationships with People where we see, um, you know, a common relationship where we can help each other. Um, products that I get excited about where I really think I can bring something to the table. And um, if that means that there are 10 plates spinning, then, then there'll be 10 plates spinning. If it means there are two, there'll be two. But it'll be the projects that I choose to work on. And that's the thing that I'm most excited about is uh, I've been able to go out and, and pick my partners. And they've been able to go out and pick me. So the free agent status is kind of a cool thing. That's a nice, that's a nice space to be in. So safe to say you're, you remain very optimistic about the future of the video game business. No question about it. I mean, I think you know, gaming is here to stay. And, and I remember when I first got into the gaming industry, you know, people saw it as toys for boys, 12 to 17-year-olds. And I don't know why I was doing it, but I was flying through Washington, D.C., and the woman next to me asked me what I did. And I said, I'm in the gaming industry. And she was obviously some bureaucrat. She looked over at me and said, well, I guess you got to do something to make a living. <laughs> and, you know, I'm so proud of the gaming industry and the gaming as an art form. And I think it's, you know, it's interactive mainstream entertainment. And just like you know, most people alive today don't remember what it was like before the TV. Uh, there'll be a time when people couldn't imagine what it was like before video games. And I think, you know, video games have had such a positive impact on people's lives. Absolutely. And it'll continue. It used to be, you know, the gaming industry imitated the film industry. Now most movies are made on gaming or based on gaming franchises, not games being made based on movie franchises. So, you know, I sold the original Ghostbusters and... You know, really? Yeah, you, you were waiting uh, for the studio to give you snippets of information and the video game was an afterthought and now to have people come out and court you for the rights to do a movie based <laughs> on the game that you did um, is a big reversal and probably the biggest reversal that I've seen in, in my time in the industry. But, you know, gaming dictates uh, entertainment today where, you know, it was kind of an offshoot uh, that was only recognized by the the real core gamers now i mean i think everybody appreciates how big gaming is well jack uh i this is my first time meeting you and i i love your enthusiasm and the energy and the 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 wisdom and the knowledge that well, thank you, you Ryan. This. Got a lot of great guests on the show, so it was an honor to it's be It's been there. fun. Uh, Jack Trenton, the longtime CEO and president of Sony Computer Entertainment of America, and now you can find him out uh, just sort of playing, uh, you're, you're just the Wizard of Oz behind the scenes now, <laughs> bringing, bringing good things into the gaming world. Uh, Jack, thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan. And for uh, much more from the latest, uh, from, rather, from the greatest video game minds in the business, uh, stay tuned with us every month right here on IGN Unfiltered. Attention, fans of fairy tales that are magical, hilarious, and grim. The award-winning Pinna original podcast, Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest, has new episodes out now. While you've probably heard of the Brothers Grimm, you've never heard these tales told in quite this way. I'm Adam Gidwitz, best-selling and Newbery Honor author of Books for Children, and in Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest, I share the real 
weird, grim fairy tales with real, weird, hilarious kids. In each episode, you not only get to hear a story, but you also get to enjoy this group guessing what'll happen next, cracking jokes, and sharing their own perspectives on the tales. Also, heckling me. They love to heckle me. The episodes are rated on a scale from grim to grimmer to grimmest, so there's always a great variety of tales to explore with your family. You can listen to Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest now wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow the show so you don't miss new episodes. 